0: If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9. 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of this chapter this morning. It's really a two part sermon. As you see, the title is Paul's Example of Sacrifice, part one. And the next time when we uh, look into this uh, chapter, we'll be doing part two. And so you see, our keywords this morning are apostle, wages, and gospel for you worshipers in training. Last week, we finished chapter 8, where we dealt with a specific question of whether or not it was right for the Corinthian people to go into an idol's temple and eat meat that had been used in the worship there. Paul's response to them on this issue was to say that the Corinthians, whose consciences, did not bother them in this matter, should be ready and willing to limit their freedom in this area for the sake of other believers whose consciences rightly or wrongly did bother them and thus might be tempted to go against their conscience to in imitation of their stronger brethren. But Paul did not simply expect that only the Corinthians congregation would exhibit this sort of other-centered behavior. In the last verse of chapter 8, Paul states that he too is willing to practice this sort of lifestyle for the sake of his brothers and sisters, where he said, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so then, as chapter 9 begins, and we will be looking at this morning, Paul is not finished responding to this issue. Uh, that he started and raised in chapter 8. In fact, he will not really be finished responding to this issue until we get to the first verse of chapter 11. And so in the verses before us this morning, Paul picks up exactly where he left off in chapter 8 with his expressed willingness to do what he is instructing the Corinthians to do for one another. As proof that he means what he is saying, Paul goes on in chapter 9 to offer an example of how he has already done he continues to do the very thing, that he's asking them to do. Now, complicating Paul's teachings on this matter is the situation which which we have seen before and which comes to the surface again here the fact that at least some of the people in this congregation in in the church in Corinth had begun to question whether or not Paul uh, was a legitimate apostle, whether he was legitimately uh, the person to be bringing this teaching to them and therefore whether his authority over them was valid. And as we have seen in the past, the source of all this can be traced partly to the influence of many false teachers in Corinth and partly to Paul's own self-conscious choices whereby relying on God's ways and God's spirit to work in rejecting worldly ways and patterns, Paul has set himself up for being both doubted and criticized by immature worldly Corinthians. This tragic situation becomes evident again here in chapter 9. So before he can even substantiate what he has said in chapter 8, before he can offer his own life as an example of the things he has been talking about in in verse 13 of chapter 8, he has to pause firstly to defend his apostleship to them once more. And so that's what he's going to start off doing here this morning, actually in the first couple of verses of chapter 9. But then he's going to go into explaining uh, the situation of his life and setting himself up as an example of sacrifice in order to spur these Corinthians on who were struggling in this area. And so he's going to do that in many different ways this morning. And so the first we're going to look at in verses 1 through 6, he begins to defend himself as an apostle. Following the section on the weaker brother, Paul wants to further encourage the Corinthians to analyze their freedom for the sake of others particularly as it relates to the Gospel. He does this by way of personal testimony. He was not asking the Corinthians to do something that he was not willing to do himself. Paul practiced what he preached, and he sets forth his own life as an example of living a life that is free in Christ, yet limited by concern for the Gospel. So I want to read, first of all, the first 14 verses, and then we'll start going through them uh, piece by piece chapter 9, verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ." Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. <laughs> and so these are what this this is Paul setting out this morning to offer himself as an example, a living example of what he's trying to get these Corinthians to see. Uh, In chapter eight, and so the first thing he starts off here, and as you notice, this this text, this section I just read, is filled with rhetorical questions, questions that Paul is posing, uh, that would that would require a positive response. And so he starts off here in verse one uh, by trying to assert and uh, his his credentials, so to speak, when he says, "Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord?" So he starts off here and this his first proof here is laying out the fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what is an who are who were the apostles of Jesus Christ? Some people today call themselves apostles. And so are they genuinely apostles of of Christ as Paul was? And so we look if we I want to read a passage in Acts chapter 1 which lays out the requirements of what an apostle was supposed to be in order to be one of Christ's apostles and this is the the text where they're they're deciding who they're going to pick to replace Judas uh, in the early days of the church. He says in verse 21, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so you see, there's your very clear requirements of an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. He had to have have been a, a a disciple of Christ during his uh during his days but also um you have to ask okay well how does Paul fit into that because, because Paul was not one of these men who walked with Christ when he was in his earthly ministry and so where did Paul meet the risen Christ well we all know the story of Acts chapter 9 and Paul's Uh, meeting the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. When he was going to Damascus, he he thought he was going to, on behalf of the high priest, to arrest these Christians who were causing all these problems. And so Christ meets him, and he says there in in verses 4 and 5 of Acts chapter 9, "...the Lord appeared to Paul on the Damascus road in his risen form." where Paul was converted and commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. If you remember that bright light that shone around him and knocked him off his horse, and he was blind for a time, and Jesus was sitting there, was there talking to him, uh, on that road, and it, we know that that was the point of Paul's conversion as well as his commission. And so at that point, Paul had seen the risen Christ. We also know that in Acts chapter 18, actually right as Paul was entering into Corinth in order to begin the, the work of planting a church there, he also sees the Lord in a vision there where he told him to, to be of great courage because he said, I have many people in this city. And so Paul seen the risen Christ there in a vision and then Paul, even his own testimony of himself in First Corinthians fifteen, says, last he was speaking about the apostles himself, and he says, Last of all, as one as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And so this is the testimony of Scripture that Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he was laying this out before them this morning to say, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? But then we see Also, a second proof, at the end of verse 1 and verse 2, he says, "...are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord." So here, Paul is appealing to their own existence as a church. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Would you exist as a people of God if God had not sent me to you in order to plant you, to bring the gospel to this city? This is how this is the reason you are a Christian in the first place. Not that Paul was sovereign over their salvation, but he was the instrument that God brought to that city to bring the gospel, which is what converted them. And so they had forgotten that and in, in in old days, uh, uh, biblical days, the word we says for you are my seal of my apostleship. The seal was an official, a signet ring, so to speak, that a person would press into wax, whether it be on a, a letter or something that made it official. It had the the markings of that person who had authority. And so Paul is saying here, you are the seal of my apostle. The very fact that you are a church now, the very fact that you have been converted to Christ shows. "...that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ." And so Paul goes on in verses 3 through 6. He says, "...this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas?" And so what's he doing? Paul argues in verses 3 to 6 that as an apostle, he can claim the same rights as all other apostles... And now, now from what he says in these verses, we can see the sort of things that he has in mind. He, he's laying some things out. He's beginning to now to establish these rights that he possesses because he's going to show in the end that he's not made use of these rights as an example to them. And so he's, first he has to do is establish what rights he has that he has. And so the first he says, he, he that, uh, throws out several Uh, things that should be true of him. He says the right has the right to three meals a day, so to speak, to be fed, the right to eat and drink, to to earn a living in order to be fed, to buy food, the right to take along a believing wife, to take along a wife. And this is not, in a sense, the right to be married. It's the sense that if he was married, he would have the right to take take his wife along with him in his ministry endeavors, as the other apostles were uh, probably doing. And uh, and so that's what that's what Paul's getting at. He says the right to make a living wage from his work as an apostle without having to engage in other la- labor. And this apparently was the normal practice of the apostles. They were they were engaged in, in uh, being. They were not engaged in um, uh, 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 earning a living, so to speak. They were they were receiving their their wages from their gospel work. And so Paul lays out there the first things that he's laying out as far as what his, his rights are to earn a living as an apostle. First, he had to establish that he was apostle. And then in verse 7, he goes on to, to, to lay out several other stipulations that would show that he could earn a living in, what he, in his gospel work. The first thing we see in verse 7, and this is really in everyday life, he says, "...who serves as a soldier?" at his own expense who plants a vineyard without eating any of, its, any of its fruits or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk here paul's giving just three everyday steps uh real life illustrations he says who serves as a soldier? soldiers do not fight during the day and then go off to work at night to earn a living to provide for their family it's just not done that way soldiers are provided so that they can devote their entire life to war farmers do not cultivate a crop and then go to work another job to make a living they're the very fact that they're growing pro, uh, crops and produce, they earn their living from that. Shepherds expect a return on their work as well. They, they will either get the milk uh, from, the, uh, fr- from the herd or either they will get some other payment in lieu of that in order to provide a living for their family. And so Paul is laying out here that in everyday life, people receive wages for the work that they do. And then he goes on to lay it out in God, from God's law in verses 8 through 11. Paul seems to sense that perhaps some would look at what he has said and claim that he is simply thinking about these things in a worldly fashion, taking his cues from the culture and not from Scripture. He says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And so Paul is laying out here a, a, an argument from Scripture now. He goes back to Deuteronomy 24 uh, he, to, to develop an, uh, that, that God has laid this out beforehand. Paul reminds him of something which Moses wrote about not muzzling an ox when it treads out the grain. This command in Deuteronomy 25 appears in a list of miscellaneous commands which nevertheless have a common concern to promote and ensure justice in the the day-to-day affairs of life. As a result, a number of different situations are addressed and envisioned, including this one regarding the treatment of livestock. And so he's laying out, because God was laying out a list of commands, day-to-day commands that the Jews would follow uh, in their everyday life. And so he laid out this command about how an how a farmer should treat his oxen when he's treading out the grain. He should not just uh, harness, harness the, the shackles around his neck in a way that he could not at from time to time eat some of the grain himself and thus be nourished. And so Paul is laying this out saying uh, this is what God has established from the beginning. And he's saying this is, God was not writing these things primarily just to teach us about animals and about how to treat them. I mean, that was one part of it. But he said, really and truly what God is getting at in this command way back is that a worker should earn wages from his living. He should be paid for what he does. And so Paul is laying this out here from Scripture and from law. And he says, also he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And so he's trying to connect the two now. He's trying to say that even in the spiritual realm, even in the realm of, of working in the spiritual realm, uh, what like an apostle would do you know we, he still should be able to earn a living it is still it's not a soldier it's not a farmer it's not a shepherd but nonetheless they should be able to reap material things even though they have been working in the spiritual and so then paul makes this he makes this connection from their own from from there to his own life and to barnabas And then in verses 12 through 14, we see three other ways that he lays this out. He says, it is done for others. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now you're beginning to see it open up and see why the answer to why Paul would not demand these rights. And we're going to get into that a lot more clearer next week. But he's beginning to open it up because he says here, Others share this rightful claim on you. Apparently the others, whether it be the, the pastors who were involved in, in, the, in the church of Corinth at the time or some of the other apostles that have been involved in this church in the past, they, were, they had this rightful claim on you. And so Paul is laying out this case. What about, what about me? What about Barnabas? Do we not have this same claim as they do? And then in verse 13, he's laying it out as a universal pattern. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? This was true in the Jew and the Gentile sacrificial system. Everybody knew that. The Jew, If he's writing to Jews, if Jews was reading this, they would understand that the priest... Would, would be involved in receiving his income from the sacrificial system. The Levites had no inheritance, if you remember. They received all of their inheritance uh, from the people, from the sacrificial system. And even in the pagan sacrificial system here in, the, here in the city of Corinth, the priests would would receive their wages and their living through that. And so he's laying this out as a universal pattern. It's known everywhere that those who are employed in religious services share in the offerings and then he really puts the capstone in the nail on it when he says in verse 14 that jesus commanded it in the same way the lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel this is, this could be alluding to a, a teaching that jesus had in matthew chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 where he says acquire no gold nor silver no copper for your belts nor." No bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. Jesus was teaching. You see it in Luke chapter 10 when he was laying, giving instructions to the seventy who would go out in his name to proclaim the gospel, and he was saying, "Take, don't take anything with you. You're going to earn your wages from the people." And so finally, after reasserting the legitimacy of his apostleship and after firmly establishing his right to support as an apostle, Paul finally is in a position to say what he has set out to say from the very beginning, that even though he has a perfect right to be materially supported by the church, he nevertheless has not chosen to exercise this right. Even though his choosing to do so has meant difficult labor in a more trying and stressful existence than he might have otherwise experienced, he was willing to do this for the sake of the gospel. As we just saw in verse 12 where he says that he use—he had not made use of this right, but he endures everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Clearly, it was Paul's perception that for him to do what other apostles were doing in the matter of receiving support would have been detrimental to the gospel's advance in Corinth. So we have to ask our question, Why? Why does Paul make such a big deal about not wanting to uh, assuage himself of this right? Why, did he, why was it a big issue for him not to get paid? Well, knowing something about the situation in Paul's day helps us to see why this is going on. Richard Hayes, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, says this, It is important to remember that Paul did not fit readily into any recognizable job description within the culture of Corinth of the Corinthians. There was no established model for Christian ministers, nor were there existing institutions such as universities or church denominations to employ or sanction teachers and preachers. Paul was simply a freelance missionary. So as a result, the Corinthians would most naturally have compared him to the rhetoricians and philosophers familiar within their world. So... End quote. So what he's saying there is that he would have been just one other, another in a, in a sea of philosophers that they have heard through their whole lives. Paul would just be another one of these. Uh, no one in Corinth had ever heard of a Christian minister or missionary before. So to all external par- appearances, Paul is just like every other philosopher who had showed up in the city. And unfortunately, these people did not always have the best of reputations among the people. Part of the reason for that was the manner in which they themselves supported themselves. There were typically four ways that a philosopher uh, in the city of Corinth would um, provide for himself. Some of them charged fees, sold tickets for people to come and hear them speak. But people who took this approach were often accused of being greedy and manipulating people. Others charged no fees, but instead were supported by a wealthy person who believed in their cause. These philosophers were often taken up with responding to the whims and personal needs of their patrons and were open to the accusation of being unduly influenced by their dependence on this patron. Some philosophers simply resorted to begging on the streets, and apart from being a very uncertain sort of existence, these were sometimes seen both as leeches or parasites sponging off of others. And then the fourth way were some philosophers chose to work at a particular trade to support themselves, this had the disadvantage of cutting into their time and availability, but it spared them from the charge of being greedy or of being controlled by a wealthy person or someone else. Because this situation was so prominent in Corinth and and more so that it was for the, uh, the other apostles who were in different contexts. It wasn't so much an issue for uh, the others in Jerusalem who didn't have the same context, but this was Paul's particular situation as the apostle to the Gentiles. He decided that of the four different ways described above, he would adopt the last one. He would choose to occupy himself with the trade. To do otherwise in this context at this time would have rendered the gospel message open to slander, which Paul would not allow. Even further, by taking on a trade which was considered to be a lowly sort of thing to do, Paul was a living illustration of the gospel reality of God's strength being most clearly displayed in human weaknesses. So this is what Paul has decided to do. Instead of blending in and being just the next philosopher who showed up in the city square, which people would either listen or ignore, he decided that, no, I'm not going to look like them. I'm going to try to look different than them because they do not understand this con—they didn't understand the concept of of Christianity yet. They don't understand it. It's not clear. This then is the point of Paul's personal illustration. This is the point of why this text is here, in this in this broader context of chapters eight through eleven. If Paul was willing to forego his more substantial rights of being materially supported as an apostle, and that with far more personal consequences, how much more should the Corinthians be willing to forego? their rights with regard to the far less serious issue of eating meat offered to idols in an idol temple. This is why Paul wrote chapter 9, is to show them that he was willing to forego his rights. And in these rights that he was willing to give up were substantially greater than what he was asking these other people to do to refrain from their liberty that they seen it as they seen it to go and eat idols in these temples to continue in this environment. Clearly, Paul is not asking the Corinthians to do anything that he himself is not willing to do and to a far greater personal cost. This is the significance of this passage in Paul's day. And so in the next few minutes, as we bring this to a close, I want to focus on two implications for us of as we look at this passage this morning. One is more secondary through the main thrust of the passage and the other is more primary. We'll start with the secondary implication which has to do with the whole matter of supporting those who are in full-time gospel work. The reason I say this issue is secondary importance is simply because in the context of 1 Corinthians 9, that's how the issue functions. In other words, Paul did not write 1 Corinthians 9 to build a case for supporting those who minister in in, in, in Christ's church. That wasn't his main purpose. To be sure, he does make that case, and so it has merit for us to consider, and we will consider it but he only makes the case in the service of a more significant purpose, encouraging self-sacrificial behavior in the Corinthians. And so that's what I mean when I say it's a secondary issue, but it is an important issue, and it is here in the text. In thinking about this matter, then, I think there are two messages to be found as we think about this. One is for those those who are in full-time Christian work or considering full-time Christian work, and the other is for congregations that benefit from their ministry. Now, admittedly, it seems and feels a little self-serving for me as a full-time gospel worker to stand up before you this morning and talk about this. However, that's what's in the text, and so we need to talk about it, and so we're going to try. For those in full-time Christian work, this passage leaves us no choice but to ask and to keep asking ourselves some potentially uncomfortable questions we need to ask ourselves what our being supported and the manner in which we are being supported says to this culture, to this context in which we minister today. What is the message being sent by these things? Does our being supported or the manner in which we are supported or the level in which we are being supported present an obstacle to the gospel of Christ in Rink Georgia in 2010? Paul perceived that it did in Corinth in the day that he was there. But the question for us morning, for me this morning is to say, does this present a, a, a hindrance to the gospel work today in 2010 in Rinkin, Georgia? Those who are engaged in full-time Christian work must be willing to be scrutinized on these issues. We must be willing to ask hard questions. We must, like Paul, be willing to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel if it need be. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to even take up other employment if that proves necessary in order to guard and protect the integrity of the gospel in this culture? These are hard questions, and we have to ask ourselves these questions. Ministers have to ask themselves these questions. I have to ask myself this question. I have a great deal of respect for bivocational pastors. I know many of them who work in other jobs, and then they preach on Sunday or pastor churches. It's extremely difficult and i have a great deal of respect for them and their desire is one day hopefully their goals are always to be able to commit themselves 100 percent to the gospel work because it is so difficult but nonetheless realize that it is a tremendous tremendous duty and it is hard work and i have a great deal of respect for those who do it and many of them do it quite well i must say so that's the questions that I must ask myself as a gospel worker. Am I willing to endure hardship if the case presents itself? Is my being supported by this church an obstacle to this church and to the work of this church and this community? The second part of this is for congregations, for you, who benefit from the ministry of those who are in full-time gospel work. These are hard questions as well. This passage forces you to ask whether or not you are taking care of and are committed to taking care of the under-shepherds to whom God has entrusted to the care of your souls. Are you giving double honor, as Paul talks about elsewhere, to the elders that rule well among you? And so these are the questions that we have to ask ourselves as a congregation, as God's people, all everywhere have to ask themselves and consider these things. What ought to be happening in our churches is that congregations recognize and are willing and even enthusiastic to fulfill these obligations to their pastors. And on the other side of it, the pastors are equally willing and committed to holding that enthusiasm in check and making sure that there are no obstacles being being placed in the way of the gospel. That's how it ought to be. And that's the minor implication of this passage this morning. Paul is laying out a case... For gospel workers to be to earn their living to provide for their families from this text. But what was the major implication? What is Paul's major focus of why he wrote this chapter? It has to be the gospel first stance of Paul that so, so ordered and influenced his life. His passion to keep the gospel free and clear from any hindrances, whatever that might mean for him personally. And as a result of this gospel-first stance, Paul was more than willing to forego his personal rights to abandon his apostolic privileges and bypass opportunity for the sake of the gospel's advance. To put it another way, what is on display here is the gospel-driven sacrificial mindset and lifestyle of Paul. This is the lifestyle that was demonstrated by Jesus It was modeled by Paul and ought to reflect the lives of God's people wherever they may be found. What what broke Paul's heart about so many of the problems in the Corinthian church was their self-indulgence, their spiritualized self-centeredness that kept popping up all over the place. It was everywhere. We see this reality at work in the divisions that Paul talked about in chapters 1 through 3. We've seen it in the issue of sexual immorality in chapter 5 the matter regarding lawsuits in chapter 6, and in the questions regarding marriage and divorce in chapter 7. It was everywhere in Corinth. Self-indulgence. Self-centeredness. And unfortunately, it's everywhere in the church today. The church out there and the church in here, when you look across the landscape of evangelicalism, what is the word that comes more readily to mind? Indulgence or sacrifice? Let me ask that again what is the word that comes more readily to mind as you think about the church, whether this church or other churches or churches everywhere, is it indulgence or is it sacrifice? When you look across the landscape of your own heart, when you look at your own heart, when I look at my own heart, what is the word that comes to my mind? Indulgence or sacrifice? Are we a people that are more likely to cling to fiercely to our rights or to surrender them? and even, Or even maybe to chafe at the suggestion that we ought to surrender them? That's the question for us this morning as we look into our hearts, as we look individually at ourselves, as we look across the landscape of our church and even broadly outside of the walls of this church. Are we a people that have been called to sacrifice? Or do we live in indulgence? I think we would all recognize that... that as Americans, we all struggle here. We all struggle because we are told. we are From the, from the moments we're able to learn words as a child, we are taught and, and, and it's just put into our minds through television and through magazines and radio and all the things around us to indulge yourselves in the wares of this society, in the trappings of this society. And I'm not here to sit here and say that these things are necessarily wrong or evil in and of themselves. But indulgence to the point of idolatry is wrong. It's sin. And we have to look at that. Oh, that God would work so hard in our hearts that we are far more ready than we are far quicker to surrender our rights than we are to claim them. These are questions for you to reflect upon, comments and suggestions for you to reflect upon. That God would work so hard in our hearts that we would be far more ready and far quicker to surrender our rights, whatever they may be, that we are, than we are to cling to them or claim them. We need to be in prayer that our grasp of the Gospel would be so clear and the sufficiency of Christ so strong in our minds that we are free and becoming freer all the time to both see the idols of our hearts... And then let them slip away from our clutching hands. you understand what I'm saying when I say the idols of our hearts? Those things that we love so much that we could not live without. Those things that have taken the place of Christ in our life. And they're there. Our, our hearts are idol factories. And we cling to them like a child clings to a toy that he just got. He will not let it go. We need to be in prayer that our love for Christ and His body, the church, would storm the gates of this kingdom we call self, and it's a kingdom from the inside out, breaking down the wall so that we become increasingly incapable of thinking of ourselves apart from the body of Christ to which we belong, and the head of that body who is Christ to whom we have pledged our faithfulness. Do you see yourselves as an individual, as a maverick, as a lone ranger, so to speak, in the kingdom. If we do, if we see ourselves or if we act that way, then there is idolatry in our life. There are things in our life that we will not let go. Pride, arrogance. And so my heart for us as a church that no matter what they may be, and Paul was laying out an example here, a very extreme example. He was saying I, I I should be able to re, to support myself. I have that right. Nobody has told me to withhold that right. All the other apostles are receiving payment for their are receiving wages for their work in the kingdom. They're being they're, they don't have to worry about where they're going to get their next meal. They just focus on the word. I have that right as well, but Because I love the Gospel so much, because I think it's going to be a hindrance right now at this moment, I'm going to withhold that right from myself because I love you so much and I love the Gospel so much that I would rather die than put a hindrance in front of that. That's what Paul is laying out for us today. In these first 14 verses, and as we go into next week, he will answer the question more clearly of why he's doing this. He says in verse 15, "...but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship." What then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? So you see the heart of this apostle. He was willing to go without food for the sake of the gospel. So my question for you in closing today is what are you willing to sacrifice for the gospel? What are you willing to give up? Examine your life this week. Look at the things that you do. The things that you treasure. What would you be willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? And when I say give up, I don't mean grudgingly like you having to pry somebody's hands open and then snatch something out of their hand. I'm saying that as you survey your life and as you see the things in your life and you see a possibility that you could give up something to advance the Gospel, would you willingly throw your arms open wide and push it away for the sake of the Gospel? That's our question. That's our challenge as a church and as a people. To put the Gospel first. To put others first above ourselves. These people in Corinth, these strong brethren that we looked at in chapter 8, we're not doing that. They were indulging themselves. They were living a life of self-indulgence, not a life of sacrifice. And Paul condemns that. But he doesn't just come out and condemn it and say, you just, you're just you doing wrong, you stop it. He lays himself out before them as a living example. And so that's what we're challenged to do, to be living examples of sacrifice for the Gospel's sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for... The work of the Gospel, we thank that we're all involved in that. You've called us into this work. We pray, God, as we are engaged in this work, that we would survey our lives to see the things that hinder us from working, the things that hinder the Gospel, the things that cause others to stumble. And, Father, help us always to look as, at this life as fleeting, at this place as not our home, but that we are pilgrims and sojourners through this life and that we are here for one reason and one reason only, and that is to share the good news of the Gospel and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Give us that passion, Father, for that. And help us, Father, to turn from the world. And we give You the glory in Christ's name. Amen.